Welcome to Abortion in the Hills. I'm James Warner, co-founder of Silicon Hills Wealth Management here in Austin, Texas. And we have a truly special guest on today's podcast, Denise Scholl. Denise is the founder of the Rethink Group. Denise works with high performers, truly the best of the best. Hedge fund managers, successful traders, investors, world-class athletes, and global team leaders. They all flock to Denise and her company to transition from good to great and from great to unmatched. Her work is both controversial and transcendent, and her results speak for themselves. If you find yourselves consistently on the precipice of greatness, fighting an unknown enemy to achieve it, then you are going to want to listen to this podcast. So please join me in welcoming Denise Scholl. James Warner is the founding partner of Silicon Hills Wealth Management and the host of A Voice from the Hills podcast. All opinions expressed by James, his co-host, and his guest are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Silicon Hills Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Silicon Hills Wealth Management may maintain positions and securities discussed in this podcast. Good afternoon, Denise, and welcome. I'm so excited to have you on the podcast today. Oh, thanks for having me. I want to skip the usual setup with you and talk about a seminal emotion, rage. Oh, oh gosh. Well, let's just dive right into this. Right out of the box. That's not even diving into the deep end of the pool. That's like cliff diving. I love it. That's what what we're going to do. Into the surf. In some respects, it's that research around that emotion that kind of launched your career. Can you talk through that a little bit with the audience? Yeah. So, I mean, I had this background in neuroscience and psychoanalysis, and then I became a trader and I was running trading desks, but I was dabbling in a small institute of what's called modern psychoanalysis in New York, like taking classes in the evening, you know, kind of keep, and I was sitting in a class and the modern psychoanalyst who was the instructor started talking about how they had used knowledge of rage to, and I'm going to do air quotes, but I mean, they meant it, cure schizophrenics. I was like, I literally, I was like, well, I guess if it could do, I think I asked questions first, but once they persuaded me, and I'll go back to the questions, I was like, well, geez, (laughs) if it could cure a schizophrenic, which is generally considered to be impossible, Surely it could help these crazy traders I work with. I mean, that is literally the moment that what turned into this consulting business and 20 years later, you asking me these questions. Like it was that moment. Like I was like, wow. Um, it turned out Hyman Spotnitz, who was a psychoanalyst in the 40s and 50s. I mean, he, he just died maybe 15 years ago or so. But he had this idea that rage you know, is unacceptable, acting, feeling it's unacceptable. I mean, acting and acting it out is not only unacceptable, but in many cases, dangerous. I mean, it's dangerous because you might do something you regret, but it's also dangerous because you might get in trouble. So he just had this idea that maybe people who had extreme rage, you know, in childhood, right? Like maybe being abused, for example, and having no recourse would kind of split that off into a separate personality is a way of managing it. And so he 
worked with people that he thought that theory might help. And lo and behold, it did help them. So, and so in that, in that work, he was actually able to, when they addressed the rage or addressed the, I guess the motivation behind the rage or just kind of made that acceptable. They were actually able to reassimilate their personality back into one. Basically. I mean, what he did is he understood that these people, first of all, they wouldn't necessarily know they were enraged. Right. Um, But he would provide a relationship where they could be enraged at him and man, and he would manage it in a way that they wouldn't be in danger. Like he would be understanding, empathetic, not reacting to threats. So like, there's this crazy story about someone pulling a gun on him and him saying, I'm not going to get this right, but something like, what's the purpose of the gun? (laughs) Oh my goodness. (laughs) Which is called an object oriented question, by the way. Like you don't say what the hell are you doing, (laughs) but like, Um, and basically enabling the person at first to express it. And then as they're able to express it without retribution, they're able to assimilate it. Um, In that same education situation, small group, there was a person that was a cartoonist for the New Yorker. And he said, yeah, I used to be formally diagnosed paranoid schizophrenic in and out of Bellevue on all the meds. And I was like, what? And I was like, and now you're just a perfectly normal New York neurotic, right? He said, basically. (laughs) So I thought, okay, assuming this is true, I mean, I know this person teaching this class. I know this person in the class. There seems to be something to this. I literally thought this is a message that the world should know because the world doesn't seem to know. And oh, by the way, like I work with a lot of crazy people and I mean, crazy, you know, not crazy, crazy, but um and maybe it would help them. And so I started thinking about it and talking about it and it, it kind of took on a life of its own. And I still encounter it. Like I have clients that are willing to get in touch with unconscious anger and some who aren't. And one of the things we learned from Hyman Spotnitz was you don't try to force the person. Like you work right. with their resistance with their defense mechanisms and you just try to bring them to the place that they're willing to, you know, venture into this scary world, let's say of their unconscious range. So, I mean, I don't think I get, you know, near miraculous results like curing schizophrenia. Now, of course I don't get the chance either <laughs> in a business consulting sense, but. Um, no, but it's always interesting what, what the spark is to, you know, you know, how you, how you enter into your work. Right. And, and so you work primarily with, you know, hedge fund managers, Olympic athletes. I mean, some really successful high performers, people that we would think are, are very successful and they've kind of hit a wall, right. I mean, in some way, shape or form. Yeah. And, yeah. and they're dealing with this, this conflict and the, maybe they don't even know what it is, but the conflicts eroding their conviction and their confidence is that kind of, yeah, that's did a- I get that right. Is that how that, really plays out so i always say my clients come from in the excuse me they come from two veins either some problem like behavior performance problem they can't solve you know i always do this thing or 
like just being a high performer, I just want to get better. Sometimes the I just want to get better is the executive team of wherever they work has decided they're going to have a coach and they interview executive coaches and they're not crazy about it. And then somehow they find me and call me um, with investment managers, whether that, I mean, I have hedge funds, I have long only, I have commodities traders. Um, there's this, I think of it as layered. Like what's their intuition? What's their sense of the right thing to do in markets, which is coming from their experience and accumulated expertise, but they don't know how to trust it. Right. Like, and they don't know. So I would just say like, what do you really think? I ask that I tell them to ask themselves, what do I emphasis on? I really think the point of that is to like remove the judgment. You don't want it to be, what does someone else think? Or what does someone else, what will someone else think about what I think? You just want to like be honest with, what do I really think? Because people like actually don't answer that question. So anyway, that gives them kind of a sense of what they actually think, right? And then I ask them how much they believe it, which is a measure of their conviction. And then it, it kind of derives into a predictive element too, right? It's not only what do I think right now, but what do I predict that I will feel based on this decision? You did your homework. Yes. Um, so the cutting edge of brain science is showing that number one, we're all, everything we do, everything we perceive is a prediction. Like you're listening to me, people will be listening to me, don't realize it, but you're predicting the next word that's going to come out of my mouth based on your knowledge of the English language primarily a little bit of the knowledge of the subject matter. Even so the whole idea, all the things that we learn, like in psych one of one stimulus response, it's turning out it might not even be true that you learn as you're growing up, like, you know, you touch the hot stove, you know, like that you learn all these things, like what will happen if you touch the hot stove. And as an adult, your perception is an expectation, not actually like objective reality. But even more importantly, it's an expectation of a feeling. And it's that expectation of a feeling that causes you to choose. That's what drives your behavior. You don't know it because it's unconscious or at best semi-conscious until you start thinking about it. And so that's the source of that internal conflict, right? Because you're some days you're waking up and you're choosing one way. The next way you're waking up and choosing another way, you don't even realize you're conflicted. Yeah. When all of a sudden you're not effective because you're choosing from two different sides of that same coin, right? Well, what happens is and, uh, and there are unrealized conflicts all the time. I mean, never mind in complicated situations where the person's like really struggling with a, some sort of repetitive behavior, but just in like, I have a client super successful in the entertainment business, a producer type, not an actual entertainer. But, you know, if I told you like his best friends, they're all names, you know, he's been super successful and he's sort of like, do I want to like take this to the next level or not? Do I want to like take it easy and, and, you know, raise, help my wife raise our kids or do I want to, you know, try to be Jay-Z for example, you know, and 
it's sort of like one day he would want to be Jay-Z or, or Puff Daddy and the next day he, you know, was like, I don't need all that hassle. And like, I will get, I will say, well, let's just solve the conflict. Let's figure out what's, you know, what's, what's really important to you, what you think life will be in 10 years or 20 years, how you would like it to be. The other day I said, okay, what do you want life to be in 10 years? He just bursts out laughing. He's like, I don't know. I said, okay, let's try for five. Um, but people don't realize that, I mean, kind of like you said, one day they are acting out of feeling like one priority is, one possibility is, a, is, a, is their priority. And the next day, the thing that's in direct conflict, they're focused on that. And they don't, and, to, and just making the conflict conscious, where they really realize, wait, I want these two things. And I actually can't have them both. They didn't realize that. And when they do, it gets easier to choose. And, and that's kind of that pursuit of clarity that you talk about, isn't it? Because at that point, when you realize that, whether it's good, bad, or indifferent, at least you have clarity of purpose and you can move forward. Yeah. Well, I even tell people, I mean, and this is true, like I try to teach all my clients to answer the question, what am I feeling and why am I feeling it? And what we have found is that when people get the answer right, like they know it's what they're really feeling and the reason that they're really feeling it, no matter how bad the revelation is, like let's say they didn't realize they were, you know, really mad at someone because of something awful that person did. Like realizing that is unpleasant and like unwanted. Like you would prefer not to realize that, right? Because you would really prefer not to be sure. in that situation. But I have seen time and time again where people answer that question accurately and the, the irritation, the agitation of those feelings dissipates. It's like it's gone from your unconscious or semi-conscious to your conscious mind. And then your adult conscious mind goes, okay, well, that is what it is. This is what I'm dealing with. Now what? What everyone will tell you to do, right, is think about what's the right thing to do logically and push those intense feelings aside. And then what happens is people go, you know, they're, they're, they're like grinding brakes or something, you know, agitation and like they're never satisfied and it, you know, they can get tweaked really easily. And when they realize what it is, they may not, they may really not like it and it may be really unpleasant, but they go, okay, now what can I do? And they actually get calmer the, and get more clarity. I think I heard you, I think I heard you say that the suppression of those feelings actually intensifies them. Yeah. So, you know, there's a lot of advice to reframe things, meaning like take a situation that seems unpleasant and, you know, change your perspective. There's a decent body of research that shows if, if the thing doesn't mean that much to you, and the example I always give is like going to your mother-in-law's for Thanksgiving and dealing with the crazy uncle. Like, okay, you know, <laughs> three, four hours, I can have a glass of wine, I'll get through it. I'm not going to see this person for another year. It's fine. But the research says if it's something that actually matters to you or symbolic of something that matters to you. So like an investment, maybe this one investment or this one trade, this one decision in and of itself doesn't matter, but it has a sim symbolic meaning to you for something that's important. That reframing tends to make it worse. 
tends to make. And you refer to that. There's a critical development period. I think that you talk <laughs> about where we develop our script and then it kind of plays out unknowingly across our lives. Yeah. And so is that kind of what you're referring to here is the, or when, when something goes back into that script, whether we're dealing with it today or. Yeah. Is it, is it that place where it's really trans, you know, really transcendent for us and really causes us some problems? Yeah. So there's a couple of things in that. Um, so first of all, always predicting those predictions are based on past experience. So like, you know, if we feel like we've been rejected more than average or conversely, I mean, I had a client who felt like he would never be rejected and he would always get special treatment and, you know, you will expect what you've gotten. So there is a concept of critical periods. Like the easiest way to understand it is if birds don't hear their species song, I don't know if species is the right word, but you know, the robins don't hear the robin song um, during a particular period of time, some, you know, whatever, whatever time it is, 14 weeks, I don't know. I don't remember, I did know it one time. They'll never learn the song. Wow. That's called critical periods in biology. So in my master's work, I surmise that there are critical periods for self-image. And so when we're very little, like as we're kind of figuring out, you know, what is this? Who am I? Who are these people? What is all this? Where do I fit? How will I be treated? Um, now, can that be modified over time? Yes. But generally speaking, and I had a psychoanalyst tell me this years and years and years ago. Well, you know, most of personalities decided by the time you're five. And I was like, what? <laughs> what? <laughs> I was about 28 when she told me that. Um, I was like, but I think there are critical periods for self-image. They may not be immutable in the way the birds are. You know, like, for example, I had a client that was born to a, a 16 year old mother on welfare. He later was essentially adopted by a track coach in school. And so that had a profound effect on him. Um, so those kinds of things do happen in human beings. But I can tell you time and time and time again, how people, the conflict they're experiencing, whether it be in the market or their business or their sport, you can go back to experiences they had. Most people can't remember before five years old, but you go back to experiences like between five and 15 and you walk through the experience, like how the person experienced that time they got beat up by the most powerful kid or popular kid in school. Like that was me. But, and you go like, how did that happen? And then how did it feel? And what, and then you like go, well, this thing you're telling me about, how did it happen? How's it happening? How does it feel? And like they match, like they're just matches. And people go, you got to be kidding me. Um, yeah. I, I think as, as I was researching the material for your podcast, uh, somehow I, I went down the rabbit hole of John Sarnos. Oh. Uh, and, and it was talking about, you know, actually physical pain mm -hmm. being alleviated by delving into the feelings of those mm -hmm. you know, scripts and how they played out over time. Uh, I have, have a crazy story work? related to that. 
Oh, what? So sure. I had a client, uh, a trader, who also had insane physical pain. She'd had insane physical pain because her mother had taken, I'm not much of an equestrian person, but she'd taken horses that couldn't be broken. Like she was known, in fact, I think she was in Texas, um, you know, horses that people couldn't manage and her mother was able to train them. So my client had been thrown off a horse, you know, hundreds of times. So she had actual reason for physical pain, right? She, in working with me, she also read Sarnos's book and she also started to think about how hurt and angry she was at her mother for putting her through that. For putting her on the horse, huh? For putting her on the horse. And the back pain went away. Oh, wow. But what it was, was I helped her be able to realize she had a good reason to be angry about that. And she didn't have to feel guilty for being angry at her mother, who by that time was starting to get dementia. So again, you know, my client didn't want to be mad at her mother because she's coming to the end of her life. And, she, you know, she had all these guilt feelings about it. Sure. But once I look, uh, she maybe should have put a, like, professional horseback rider on and not her 14-year-old daughter. I'm thinking, like, seems reasonable to me. And maybe you might be sort of mad that she did that. <laughs> um, and I think what happened, if I were, the sequence was I was working with her on that, and then she went and found Sarno's book on her own. And then came back to me, she goes, this is unbelievable. And I'm doing it and it's working. Well, I think you'd be a powerful duo just based on you know, <laughs> what limited amount I've uh, learned about both of you. So now you've referenced the thinking and behavioral crowd as kind of the flat earthers of behavioral science. I think that's a fair statement. I mean, I might, I might be being a little more harsh than you would be, which that makes you Copernicus. <laughs> well, I'll take that. And so, so what's the science behind your thesis is, so is, is the rest of the crew just wrong or do they just need to incorporate what it is, you know, into what they're doing? What, what, how would you phrase that? Or how would you, well, how would you tackle when that? I learned this, what's going to be the answer to this? I learned it through a book called Descartes by a scientist named Antonio Damasio, which is a popular book. Anybody can find it on Amazon written in the ni- 1990s. You know, Descartes said, I think, therefore I am in 16, whatever, 40 or something. And that's been the dominant model of the human mind. Like that we have this evolved, you know, extensive ability to think and that we should be able to use that to control our behavior. And that is, you know, if you take cognitive behavioral psychology, it's use your thinking to control your behavior. Right. Is it turns out your behavior is not driven by your thinking. It's driven by how you're feeling. As it turns out, you can't make a decision without a feeling. So Damasio's book was that first Descartes was talking about the burgeoning research that was showing that without emotion, you can't make a single decision. People couldn't, people who were brain damaged in such a way that they had only their thoughts, couldn't decide which candy bar to buy, couldn't decide which day to make an appointment on. Because why? Because they lacked any sense of what was correct. We think we make the decisions based on our analysis. 
we can do more complex analyses than the animals. At least it appears that they're not doing calculus, for example. I mean, they're doing some pretty complicated things, but um, like we think we make the decision on the analysis. We don't. We make the decision on how we feel about the complicated thinking that we can do. We make the decision, like, do we have confidence in our conclusions that we've drawn from our sophisticated analysis? The lever is in the feeling. So you can tell people they have confirmation bias. You can tell them they have recency bias. You know, you can tell them they have loss aversion and they can cognitively know it. And cognitively knowing it, even Daniel Kahneman at the end of Thinking Fast and Slow says basically knowing all this has done me no good. No good. Yeah, yeah. he says that. He says that. <laughs> Daniel Kahneman says I wish that. You just said it. I wish you just said it earlier in the book, but yeah, no, yeah. It's, it's fine. <clears throat> it's because the model of the mind is the incorrect one. It's not anybody's fault. I mean, it surely seemed like we had all this, you know, complex thinking ability. So that should give us the ability to like control our behavior. And it does sometimes somewhere, but it's really about how we feel and how we expect to feel. So once you understand that we're all operating out of that, it opens up this entirely new window, this entirely new set of tools, this entirely new toolbox of how to work with ourselves. And I mean, honest to God, I'm just the messenger because I was interested in this stuff. And I like, I refuse to be swayed by the idea, like if I stood up straighter and smiled, I would feel more confident. Like I was like, oh, I don't think that's really gonna work. Um, <laughs> which is why that's changing your behavior to change your feelings. And again, I'll go back, you know, there are experiments that will show that some of this stuff works, but I, you know, I'll argue that most of those experiments are not in situations that actually really mean anything to the person, you know? And but I mean, let, let's get real. I mean, the people that you're working with, you're not helping them move forward by figuring out that they have a lizard brain or that they're, you know, their, their frontal cortex is this and that and the other. You're helping them actually get in touch with their feelings and the prediction of those feelings and how those are actually impacting their decisions. Yes, and I am relying largely on the science that's known through Lisa Feldman Barrett and in popular speak, a book called Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain. She's the former past president of the you know Association for Psychological Scientists. She has a whole long list of, you know, I can't think what the word I'm looking for is, but a whole long list of accomplishments. Lisa says there's no such thing as a lizard brain. Lisa says we have all one brain. Damasio, by the way, has shown that children who only have a brain stem, I mean, that's a really sad situation, have feelings. He's shown pictures of children that only have a brain stem. They're laughing, they're crying, they're smiling, they're disappointed. So different emotional states like aren't in the middle in the amygdala because uh, those children don't have amygdala. Like said. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. So the whole triune brain thing is, it's just outdated. That's why I will say it's flat earth. I mean, I hate to offend my friends in behavioral finance, but you can read them carefully and see that even they say, you know, knowing someone is behaving out of confirmation bias doesn't stop them. You know why it doesn't? Because the feeling, like you've done some analysis, you know, you've told your boss you should buy this stock or you should sell this company or you should, 
whatever, train this way if you're an athlete. And you don't want to find out you're wrong. And you don't want to have to admit you're wrong because it'll be embarrassing. So you... Oh. Well, and it's it's really interesting because in our, in our business, intuition is... I think you consider it a very powerful emotion or something to really be fostered and understood and embraced. Right. And and there are many sections of our business where intuition is that thing we're supposed to be ashamed of. I mean, we're supposed to have this process or this quantitative model that overrides our intuition. And one of the things I love, love, love about your work is that because the most successful people I know, regardless of industry, I think if I had to put one word that would put them all together, it's intuition. Here's my ultimate. And maybe yeah. it's intuition on experience or what, I don't know what the, the motivation is behind it. I, that's, that's a little beyond my pay grade, but I can tell you that they respect it. They foster it and they embrace it. Yeah. And, and I just don't think it's a good idea for us to tell people not to do that. It's a misunderstanding. So, you know, think of Anyone with expertise in any field, and I don't care, name it. Like when they first were introduced to the field, like, you know, they took in information about it. They thought about it in a very explicit, you know, this, then that, then this, then that. And then they tried to execute this, then that, like the steps that they were being taught. And then the more familiar they got with it, the less it was step by step and the more they could breeze through it. Right? Like, the more they could look at a situation and just know what's going on. That is cognitive, explicit knowledge pushed into the body, pushed into a sense where you don't have to do step-by-step. In fact, when you've been doing it a long time, you might not even be able to do step-by-step, but there was some period of time way back when that you did. So expertise always exists as a physical sense of what's the right thing to do in whatever field the person has expertise. A few weeks ago, I was speaking to a bunch of quants in the, you know, in finance. And I said, look, you know, I flunked out of calculus, but you guys can do like, you know, calculus and beyond. And let, let me ask you what happens. Someone hands you a complex analytical problem because you're going to be able to apply some sort of math to it. And they want you to figure out what kind of math, like, what do you do? So don't you look at the problem and then what happens to you next? And they all look at me like, what am I talking about? I said, I bet you anything. You have a sense, a physical sense of the right math to apply to the problem. And they all go, well, sure, of course. I'm like, okay, you guys might all be math and quants, but that's intuition. I wouldn't have any physical sense of the math to apply to the problem, but they did because they have expertise in it. And they will, and they will say till they're blue in the face. They made no prediction. They made no, they they made no forward forecast. But yeah, they did. They did. They had a sense of Instantly, the right thing to do, right? Because they have all this expertise. So Lindsay Jacobellis, my snowboarder, who I call her my snowboarder, she just won two gold medals. At, you know, um, at thirty six years old. Like, and congratulations, by the way, to you both. Yeah, she's amazing. But. Like, I mean, I can ski down a hill pretty damn great. I couldn't snowboard down a hill like she can because why? She has so much more sense of like little nuances in the courses where she can pass someone. I mean, that's always, it's easy to see in an athlete, but it's true. It doesn't matter. Physicians, accountants, 
math experts, politicians, you name it. If you've got some sort of expertise in a realm, you have this sense of, and that sense of is physical. That's intuition. And I mean, there's all kinds of research, by the way. In research, it's all, it can, a lot of people now call it visceral intelligence. I mean, there's somatic intelligence and bodily intelligence, but visceral intelligence, meaning you have this viscera and this intelligence in it, is sort of the, the um, term that a lot of academics have settled on. But like, it's shown, I, I have one quote, you know, I think it's, it's not intuition. It's probably visceral intelligence is germane to high performance in high probability, fast paced tasks or probabilistic driven, fast paced tasks. So, you know, if that's not the market, I don't know what is. But people well, also don't know. I mean, they're taught they're not supposed to. So the first thing that happens is they try to use it in an uneducated way. And so they end up acting on their impulse or their irrelevant senses and feelings, but they don't know. So then they feel guilty and they're not supposed to, and they think the answer is the intellect. And so they try and then that doesn't work. And so then they think something's wrong with them and they never talk about it. So they're acting on those feelings and that actually makes it worse. Well, if you don't know, the, the skill is to learn to tell the difference between feelings that are giving you information about the problem at hand and feelings that are irrelevant to the problem at hand. Yes. Let's talk about that. So why is language so powerful to differentiate those negative emotions? Cause you talk about that and, and, and does the ability to differentiate those emotions, how does that increase performance? Well, I don't think anyone knows the actual answer to that yet. Um, Lisa Feldman Barrett says that it's turning out that we have neurons related to language processing um, throughout our bodies. But that's just like the very first glimmer of an answer. So that some sort of brain cells related to language processing actually extend to your stomach and your liver and your kidneys. Um, but that's literally, I until she said that not, not too long ago, I would say no one has any idea. There is, however, a lot of you know, experimental evidence that shows if people can put their feelings into words, particularly their negative feelings, they behave better. They make better choices. They can, they, now that's all people will say. Doing this helps people make better choices. I mean, there's, there's research in all kinds of realms, athletes and investors being the two that I you know, pay that much attention to. And I, but I see it all the time, actually, in my practice, too. Like, I, I try to get people to put those negative feelings into words. And, oh, by the way, we're right back at spot and it's in the anger and being able to put it into words and accept it and just, like, look at it. And then you don't have to split it off. Um, but exactly why? But that's part of the power of coaching in the first place, right, to make you write these things down or make you think about these things in a manner that you don't normally think about them on a day-to-day -day basis, right? We think of it in terms of helping people be able to put things into words that they don't even know they're thinking or feeling. And even if they, and then when they do, they think they shouldn't say it, you know, like it's bad to say it. That's the fundamental um, objective of modern psychoanalysis, help people put things into words. You know, once they get them into words, we'll worry about what to do. But just the being able to put all their thoughts and feelings into words with no judgment, like it's just a research project. Uh -huh. It's just exploratory. Um, so take me through what that kind of first session with you would be like. I mean, I assume there's a profile that's built and, and, and people 
kind of know a little bit about you and there's some mutual f- familiarity that's built up, but what happens in that first, you know, exercise? How, how do you break the ice? How do you start the work? I always say, I want to know what it feels like to be you. Like, tell me about life. Like, tell me about your day to day. Tell me about your family. Tell me about your hopes and dreams. Like I just, as best I can want to imagine what it feels like to be in your shoes. Then like, if we were successful, how would, you know, how would things be different? Like, what would we accomplish? So as they answer those questions, you know, I get a sense of how intellectual they are, how in touch with their emotions they are, how detailed oriented they are, how much they may or may not be aware of conflicts that they have. Like, and kind of what's their take? You know, I'll hear people start to say things like, well, I, sh- I feel this way, but I shouldn't feel that way. And I'll be like, you feel however you feel. So then I, in my mind, I'm making an assessment of how well do they know themselves? What does it seem like they really want? Why is, let's say, you know, almost everybody, whether... Whether they hire me to, if they if they hire me to solve a problem, then we kind of focus on that. You know, I I never get big enough in my highest conviction positions. I will orient that conversation towards what happens in those decisions. But if they hire me to like just help them generally be better, I will still be listening for the thing that gets in their way or the thing that makes them unhappy. And I'm trying to assess what are they really feeling and why, and how much do they know it. And then I take that and try to help them put more of that into words and sort it out as to which feelings are information and which are irrelevant to the problem at hand, but maybe relevant to their life. Like how are they playing out a self-image in situations, you know, with their boss or with the market as an authority figure. And so I'm always saying, you know, answer the question, what am I feeling and why? But I'm trying to help them sort that out and give them some insight into what they might actually be feeling and why. And and do you find that, I mean, I know that obviously the coaching and uh, just personal improvement stuff is certainly more, you know, more robust and more widely used today than it was, you know, 10 or 15 years ago, right? But do you find that you're the first person that, kind of tells them that feelings have information (laughs) yes now i always say is that like a light bulb moment for them or are they trying to unlearn some of the stuff they've already gone through because you might not be their first yeah usually you're not you're not the first person the person has ever worked with to like improve their performance so to speak you know all kinds of things happen like shock happens like this entertainment person I was talking, you know, when I first told him that like his negative emotions in their pure form were meant to help him, he was like, what? 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 How could that be? How could that possibly be? I'm like, think about it. Like, like if it weren't for fear, not a single person would graduate from college. Not one. Right, not one. Because no one would do the work. And we only, you know, we do the work. Yeah, we sort of kind of want to learn, but we mostly just don't want to get in trouble, you know, going to get decent grades because we want to get a job, like, or we don't want our parents to be mad or whatever, like, not a one. Like, frustration, like, is telling you something's wrong, but we don't know how to handle it anyway that way. 
Um, you know, I have clients. I have one in mind in particular. I've been working with him for since January of 2020, an auspicious time to start. Um, had to see me in his office in New York City. So we know how long that lasted, two months. Um, <laughs> and honestly, I feel like I finally had a decent breakthrough with him last week. Very, very, very in his head. And very, very, very dismissive of his own emotions. To the And when you say breakthrough, is that is that when he had a moment of clarity? He might now be willing to realize he has some feelings in his adult life that are repetitions of feelings he had when he was a teenager. And so how do you, how do you get somebody like that to stay with you for two years while they're struggling to kind of get the message? I mean, that's gotta be hard, right? Well, you know, another thing we were taught to do is meet the client where they are. Uh And so we go, you know, some people want to like really focus on what are my goals and objectives and strategies. And we really focus on that. And some people really want to focus on how am I repeating my childhood and, Some people want to focus on, like, how do I manage these people around me better, whether it be my boss or my employee or my colleague? You know, so we take these ideas and apply them to whatever situation. So in his case, we did do goals, objectives, and strategies at first. And then, and they were pretty clear, like, what he wanted. And and I just keep going back to them. But I actually, I very rarely get bored or frustrated but I've gotten bored and frustrated with this person because every week we're sort of saying, yeah, yeah, I'm really busy. I got a bunch of stuff done. I, you know, what's up world. I, I took these two business trips. We had these meetings. Finally, I said to him a couple months ago, you know, I, it doesn't seem like you need me. And ever since I said that, he's, I think he's been trying to demonstrate to me that he might need me. Because Larry, would, he would say everything was fine. There's this one thing that has not been fine from the get-go that he's angry about, that he's never really been willing to deal with his anger, and it's a total repetition. He's basically not getting the promotion that he wants. And, you know, he grew up in a really budget-conscious family where the answer to anything he wanted was no. He so deserves this promotion. But I haven't been able to get him to get angry about not getting it, which is what he needs to, like, say, look, people... Either give me the promotion or I'm going over here. But he's terrified of doing that. Uh, wow. So his script hasn't allowed him to actually be as angry as he should be based on just the the actual situation that's in front of him. Yeah. He, just because of what happened in that critical period for him, probably. Yeah. Right? And I can see, like, I've known since, since he very first explained this to me, I knew he was really mad about it. And I thought he should be mad about it. I mean... It seems like there's one person in the organization who doesn't want my client to get a better title. And that person's got more, you know, clout. Why that person doesn't want him to is a mystery. But um, anyway, I think last week I was telling this client a story about somebody else. And I was saying something about it and they realized they were, um, you know, repeating their experience, whatever, from 11 years old. And he's like, what does that mean? Like, how? how does that apply to me? He said that. Because I won't just, you know, in a, a Freudian psychoanalyst will just interpret and tell someone, I mean, I don't mean just, I, I didn't mean that disrespectfully, but they will often interpret and say, you're doing this because of that. And people will find a straight up interpretation like that, like a bit of like an assault or criticism. 
So we try not to just do that. We try not to do that. We try to lead them to the realization. And, you know, we'll say, well, I'm wondering if this could be like that, as opposed to you're doing this, because even though we might know that person's doing this because of that. But he just said, well, what's my version of that? I was like, and I said to him, I said, you know what? It's been two and a half years and I'm just going to tell you. Um, and he was like, okay, I can maybe see that. And I was like, wow. Um, <laughs> so it must require a lot of patience in your, uh, in your line of work, because a lot of times, you know, the answer <laughs> far ahead of when your actual client probably realizes the answer and unless they realize it for themselves, it might not be as powerful. Well, that's part of the art of it is learning how to tolerate the feelings the client gives you. Like that's, which is another thing we learned from the modern psychoanalyst to, um, to think about how we feel as the client's talking and realize that we may be feeling the feelings they're not aware of. It's called induction. Oh, wow. It's called induction. So we may, they may, like, they're unaware of a certain feeling. Let's say anger with that guy, particularly. Like he's unaware of how angry he is about it. And so then I end up feeling angry at him. But I'm aware of what's going on. So I don't, you know, for the most part, I mean, I'm human, for the most part, don't act it out. Try not to act it out. I've learned to be able to sit with it. And all of us, I mean, we still have a modern psychoanalyst as a supervisor who, Every five, you know, five people on my team who we all meet with individually to talk about, like, how can we help this client with this situation or how can we phrase it in a way that maybe breaks through their resistance a little bit, but doesn't threaten them. So there's an art to it. Um, but it does make sense that if, if those feelings and emotions are so powerful that they would be transcendent, they would kind of come back on you a little bit. I've had clients, I had a client once. He used to call me at 10 a.m. on a Tuesday morning from Hong Kong. Um, and I swear to God, he would say hi, and my dog would start barking. Really? Now you know how well dogs hear, right? So he could hear that guy's voice, right, through the phone. And, yeah, that dog, he, Freddie, he's gone now. Hi, Fred. Um, he, like, had such an, you know, dogs have a pretty amazing ability to, pick up on how people feel but i am not kidding one minute after 10 tuesday morning freddie's throwing a little fit wow and he was a very angry guy for a very good reason he was willing to be aware of it but he was he'd been like criticized beyond imagination but he still criticized himself in the same way um, so he took that script and just replayed it over and over. Which is what people do. I mean, they take the voice of their parents, usually their caregivers, and it's imputed into your own head. You know, sometimes we'll say, whose voice is that? And is it really your voice or is it really someone else's voice? Oh, wow. So let's put a face on it for just a second. I mean, you talked about Lindsay earlier, Lindsay Jacob Ellis. She, now she's gold gold medal winner. Uh, how'd you start working together? And maybe you can share a little bit of the, just that individual individual interaction with us. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the lo- the short and long story is I was in the Hamptons for twenty four hours. I met this guy 
who said, could you help Tiger Woods? And I was like, sure. Like, <laughs> and the next thing I know, he's like, well, I used to be receiving. Yeah, there's, there's a question we get all the time. Yeah, right? yeah. <laughs> this is 2014. So it was like, you know, in a particular, <laughs> anyway. Anyway, that led to me saying, well, I really wish I could help skiers. Turns out he knew these people at U.S. Ski and Snowboard. And I ended up giving a presentation at U.S. Ski and Snowboard. And I just basically, it was like anything you want from your athletes, you can get through helping them deal with their fear, frustration, disappointment in a different way. And this coach came up to me afterwards and said, have I got a project for you? And then he's like, here, I'm going to text you a, a YouTube link. And I only so vaguely, vaguely, vaguely knew her story, which is that she snatched a silver from gold in 2006 when she was just turned 20 years old. And had gone on to be the most decorated athlete in border cross, which is snowboard racing. But in the 2010 and 14 Olympics, she didn't even make it into the finals or really anywhere near them. In 06, I mean, she was far away ahead of the pack. Did a little celebratory, uh, mm-hmm. you know, maybe, maybe pre celebrated a little too early. She flipped her board uh, up to and- do what I now know is called a method grab. Um, you know, think she was going to sail into the finish line and she fell. Um, so, you know, that was very traumatic for her. I mean, it, to her credit, like, because she won two gold medals this year, there was a lot of replay of her 2006 video and even replay of her on the podium with the silver medal. And you could see, I mean, she's smiling, she's being gracious, but man, she's gritting her teeth and holding tears back. Right. Um, and so you you come into her into her realm eight years after the fact. Sixteen. By the time I got there, it was sixteen. So and her coach was asking, years after. Okay. asked me to help her, you know, for the eighteen Olympics. Okay. So um, she had had you know famous sports psychologist and not famous sports psychologist and and I did what I did. Like, what does it feel like to be Lindsay Jake Bellis? And I could certainly feel. You know, she was tortured after. I mean, she's still tortured somewhat. I mean, she was still tortured even in winning the gold medals. Like, have you finally redeemed yourself? Like, um, but you know, she had people say she, whatever, she um, disgraced her country. You know, she had sponsors that like pulled out. Like, I mean, it was it was difficult. Um, well, anyway, in helping her try to, and she's twenty. Yeah, she's twenty. <laughs> yeah. And you know, she's twenty. I don't mean this in any disrespect to her, and I think she did get this. I mean, she's also, she's 20 and she's been groomed to be a professional athlete, and she's always won. So in a certain sort of way, you know, she hadn't had kind of the normal struggles of, of junior high and high school kids because she just, like, was insanely fast at the sport and she just kept winning. So, you know, she didn't, she didn't like Michael Jordan where she missed the basketball team as a sophomore and then had to work through the frustration, you know, and then made it as a junior. That never happened to her. But by the same token, she never got to be Lindsay Jacob Ellis, the person. She was always Lindsay, you know, Jacob Ellis, the snowboarder. And I helped her understand that I think that contributed to why she did that method grab. That if she had been a sophomore in college, let's say, she would have been, you know, going through a period of defining herself as a separate adult. And maybe she would have dated the wrong guy or, you know, 
majored in art when her parents wanted her to major in accounting. She'd have done something that yeah, says all the mistakes we all make at twenty. Yeah, that this is who I am. This is you know where you parents and people stop and I begin. And I helped her to understand that the only place she had to do that was on the stage. You know, it wasn't probably the optimal moment, <laughs> but it, but that she would some level was just dating the wrong guy. Like in, in see, be, helping her be able to see it. And she speaks to that in this New York times article. I'm not telling any stories on her, like helping her be able to see that from an overall Lindsay Jacob Ellis, the human developmental point of view, that choice in that moment made some sense. Now, by the way, I always think things are layered. So yeah, in her mind, she was celebrating for the crowd. She was giving the crowd something to cheer about. Yes, sure. she was also celebrating early. You know, below that, there might have been some unconscious anger about like, you know, do I have to be a snowboarder? Could I be something else? <laughs> like, um, Not a great moment but to do it, but whatever. I think that's what happened. And I think it was normal developmental. And then she was... She could win everywhere else. I mean, she's got 10, 10 X Games medals. They stopped the sport in the X Games or she'd have more. Five times world <laughs> champion. You know, she's got like 35 podium appearances or something. I don't know how many other gold medals in, in World Cup. Um, and in 18, so she was able, through understanding it kind of as a developmental move and acting out an unconscious emotion. In 18, she was able to make the finals and she came literally... 0.46 seconds of gold and 0.003 seconds of bronze. And I actually, we all thought there was a wax issue even then. Um, and I didn't know what she was going to do. I thought she was going to go back, but I mean, she basically decided that she was going to give it another try. And she stood up for herself in different ways this year. Like she told her coach she wasn't doing the whole press junket thing. But she'd never done before. Like, because the press would always say, is this the year you're going to win a gold medal? Like, and she just didn't want to answer anymore, you know, right? Like, I'm here. Obviously, I would like to win. I don't need to explain to you. You know, I don't need to go through my disappointment and do, am I going to redeem myself and all this? And then I told her, I talked to her the, the Friday before. She was in China in her dorm room. And I said, look, just go be Lindsay Jacob Ellis. I'm going to start to cry because I do every time. And I knew, but I know her well enough. That I said, Jessica would be like Lindsay Jacobellis. And she, I knew she would think, yeah, but the Lindsay Jacobellis, I'm Lindsay Jacobellis who like won a silver instead of a gold. And I said, before you even think that, stop. <laughs> like the Lindsay Jacobellis is one that's won more medals in this sport than the like the rest of the people you're competing with combined. That's the real Lindsay Jacobellis. You just go out there on Wednesday and be Lindsay Jacobellis and you'll be fine. And again, I'm going to start to cry. But she'd won gold medals before, but she'd never actually not done at it the Olympics. That's her the own thing. way. Well, the thing is, not at the Olympics. Because right. after that mistake, if you will, in 2006, there was so much emotion around the Olympics. And you know, mostly the press. Like, are you going to redeem yourself? Is this going to be the Olympics you win the gold? You know, and then that brings up her embarrassment, you know, her regret, her fear, like it brings up all these feelings that she didn't have any way to process. So 
she'd gotten good at putting her feelings into words and understanding what am I feeling and why. And, and what happens when people do that, by the way, and this is very relevant to her, is as you start to be willing to realize your own feelings without judgment, you actually improve your own self-image. Like you feel like it's more okay to be you. Like, you know, some people would call it self-love. Like, but you, you grow into more of who you are because you're not denying yourself and you're not criticizing yourself. So I actually think that's what happened with her over those six years. As I was able to help her become less judgmental of herself and her feelings, she was able to become less judgmental of herself and her feelings. And she was able to be strong enough this year to say, you know what, I'm not doing the same old press junkin of how many times, you know, can you ask me if I'm going to redeem myself? I'm just not doing it. So she didn't put herself through that stress. She saved her energy. She also... Two weeks before the Olympics, opted out of a race because she thought the course was dangerous. She'd never opted out of a race before ever. But she felt strong enough to say, that course is dangerous. The Olymp- I have to be in China in a week. Actually, it was only a week. And I'm not running that dangerous course because I want to give my best shot to this Olympics. So before she, she didn't feel entitled to take care of herself in that way. It went- and so I understand she's kind of, maybe going to be part of your team going forward, right? Yeah, she's actually part of our team. I mean, you know, in a tiny amount because she's pretty busy traveling the world snowboarding. Um, But a few years ago, I was asked to coach a young surfer who wants to make the Olympics in surfing because surfing's just been added to the Olympics. I mean, it was in the last summer. but And, you know, of course, the mother had a budget. And and somehow I was like, wait a minute, Lindsay's a surfer and Lindsay lives near this kid. And I know Lindsay's interested in this and maybe this would all work. So I asked the mother, how would you feel if you had an Olympic silver medal coaching your kid? So, and she was like, what? <laughs> and I was like, Lindsay, like, you want to coach this kid? And so she has. Um, and, you know, I think someday when she retires, I mean, she asked me the other day, you know, can I still work with you when I decide to retire? And I'm like, Yes. So, but she hasn't retired yet. Well, very cool. So what's next for you? I mean, how do you, how do you take your method and, and leverage it? I know you've got a lot of people with your team. How would you uh, talk for a little bit about the rethink group? What, yeah. What's the work you're doing? How are you going to be doing it going forward? Well, I did just agree last week to do the proposal for my second book which I'm just tentatively calling mind games, which is taking what I wrote first market mind games you know, to a more general audience and a wider variety of problems other than the market decision problem. We are doing, we are putting together a a self-directed learning that I am going to, you know, have for investment managers, traders, athletes, business people. And I think for like psychologists and coaches who want to work with us, we do get a lot of requests. And the truth is, I don't know how to you know, modern psychoanalysis and prioritizing emotions and predicted emotions and seeing everything through that lens. Like, how do I train a psychologist? I mean, I don't want to be disrespectful to all the training. So anyway, that's a problem I've got as to how to do that. Yeah. Um, but I'm well, like most really successful people, your problem is just a capacity problem. Right? It is a capacity problem. Um, I mean, I do have, you know, three other people who coach 
both who are former clients. Well, I say both. One's my husband, a business partner, and I don't want him to get any more clients because he's got too many other things to do. But um, <laughs> two former clients who have then studied under me, studied under my mentor, the modern psychoanalyst. We have regular training with, I mean, they're still not like overly busy. So they still have capacity, but I do know like over the long, I need to figure out how to teach someone this method. And I haven't completely figured that out. And then you do have sessions that you run. I I know you invited me to one uh, that I think just happened fairly recently, right? In Park Uh, City? In Park City, yeah. Yeah. Uh, How often do you do those and and what are those like? (laughs) The schedule is all over the board. I didn't do one for like 12 years and I did three in a year. Um, what The next one will be next, probably the first week in March, same thing. It's pretty intense. I mean, it's like three hours a day for five days. Um, and we definitely dive into the deep end of the pool. Um, we don't start on the cliff dive into the waves like you asked me to today, but... Um, well, I think it worked out okay. It did work out okay. Um, but it's literally like I explain to people what's really going on in their market decisions all the way back to how are they repeating difficult experiences from their childhood in their expectation of the market and how is that driving them to, you know, get in too early, out too early, get too big, not stay in long enough, not get big enough, like short circum themselves at the worst moment, whatever their pattern is. Um so those are kind of, you know, professionals in the investing and trading world. I do need to figure out how to expand that. And the first version of expanding that is going to be doing some e-learning that hopefully we can make really fun and interesting and engaging. Like just the anatomy of a risk decision, you know, 30, 40 minute course that can take you through the basics and, you know, give you some quizzes and some exercises. So we're going to try to build that out as a way to, to solve that capacity problem. Well, I understand why you got a capacity problem. Oh, that's uh, so kind you're excellent of you. at what you do, and I am so grateful that you uh, chose to spend a little time with us today. I know your time is valuable, and we appreciate it very much. Love your work, and think you're awesome. So, thank you so much for <laughs> oh joining us. Oh my gosh, us. Well, thank you so much. And you know, I can tell you put a lot of effort into preparing, so I likewise appreciate that. And that's a wrap for our podcast with Denise Shaw. It was really a masterclass on intuition, understanding how feelings and emotion impact our decisions. And if you'd like to check out Denise's work, you can go on to the Rethink uh, Group website. Uh, She's obviously a published author as well, and she's uh, in the midst of uh, doing a follow-up book, which we'll let you know as soon as that uh, comes to fruition. But uh, we really enjoyed uh, our talk with Denise today. She's she's one of the pioneers in her field. And uh, just really great to have her on. Uh, You can check out uh, Voice from the Hills on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or really anywhere that that you choose to listen to your podcast. Or you can check us out on our website. Uh, We've got all of our episodes from Season 1 and 2. And, of course, this one from Denise will be on shortly. We thank you so much for engaging with us. And thanks again to Denise Scholl for taking the time to uh, join our podcast today. It was it was really beneficial and really important. And we thank you. We thank her. And obviously, we can only do our best work when you are here to listen. So thank you.